Our New Testament reading is John 17, verses 1 through 5, and then verse 24. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. This is the word of the Lord. John chapter 17. Uh, this is the final prayer that Jesus prays before his arrest. And uh, this is commonly called the high priestly prayer. It's called that because for the vast majority of the prayer, Jesus spends his time praying for others. He prays for his disciples. He prays for the church. But this first section, the section we're looking at this morning, uh, Jesus is mostly praying for himself. There's an ominous humming behind me. Does, is that, does anybody know what that is? Is that the guitar? No, I'm scared. That's what it was. Okay. Um, sorry, everybody. Uh, so this first section, Jesus, he's mostly praying for himself. And we shouldn't take that for granted. That's actually very significant. And John has really given us a gift by recording this for us. Because um, in these words, we get to hear Jesus, God the Son, how he approaches his heavenly Father. Now, when you and I pray, our prayers are always mixed with all kinds of mess, right? Our prayers, uh, we're constantly asking for things that would be terrible for us if we actually got them. Uh, we don't know what to ask for. We don't know how to pray. In fact, if you uh, come here enough, you know, there's a confession that we use a lot where it says, I cannot pray, but I sin. It goes on to say, I can't even confess my sin without sinning. He says, my repentance needs to be repented of. My tears need washing, and the very washing of my tears needs still to be washed over again by the blood of my Redeemer. That's how we pray. But here we have something else. Here we get to see something that is far superior to the kind of prayers that we pray. This is the sinless Son of God praying to His Heavenly Father. And so today, I want us to drink this in. I want us to see what a gift we have before us and to see what we can learn from this perfect prayer, to see what this can teach us about how we come before God. And so there's three things I think it teaches us. I think it first teaches us a starting point for prayer. It teaches us the starting point for our prayers and then secondly, it teaches us about the glory that surrounds all of our prayer. And finally, it teaches us the sight that will drive us to prayer. So the starting point for prayer, the glory that surrounds our prayers, and then the sight that drives us to prayer. So let's talk about the starting point of prayer. Uh, Jesus uh, has just wrapped up his farewell discourse. That's what we've looked at the last few weeks, chapters 14 and on. It's those final words 
that Jesus had to say to his disciples. And throughout them, there's this reminder where he says, I'm leaving really soon. Pretty soon I'm going away. And if you're open, if you have your Bibles open, uh, you can tell he means it very soon. Uh, it's next chapter. The, this, the little heading we see is the betrayal and arrest of Jesus in chapter 18. It's coming very quick. And with that in mind, Jesus begins to pray. So let's look at our passage. Chapter 17, verse 1, it says, When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and he said, Father, the hour has come. If you've been around for the last few months, that phrase, the hour, should be somewhat familiar to you because it comes up over and over again in this gospel. If you can remember way back to our first sermon this year, at the beginning of January, we talked about Jesus' first sign, turning water into wine. And do you remember what he said to Mary before he performed that sign? He said, my hour has not yet come. And then if you flip a few chapters later to John chapter 7, it tells that the people were trying to arrest Jesus, but they didn't arrest him because his hour had not yet come. And then again, it gets repeated in chapter 8. Over and over again, this theme of his hour has not yet come. And every time it mentions the hour, it's talking about this hour. It's talking about this one moment that his entire life has been moving towards. This inevitable event, the hour, the hour of his crucifixion. That's what the hour means. That's what it always means in the Gospel of John. So here we see Jesus is standing at this moment that has been inevitable his entire life, a a moment of absolute certainty. And it leads him to prayer. Now let's compare that to ourselves. Let's compare that to the kinds of things that typically send us into prayer. What makes you pray? What types of situations usually lead you to pray? It's not like this normally, right? It's not usually moments of of absolute certainty, but it's the opposite. We don't pray when we're sure about what the future holds. We pray when we're unsure. We pray when we're insecure. We pray when we're fearful. We pray when we're anxious. Now, I know when I'm talking about prayer, that means I'm mostly addressing Christians. I'm mostly addressing the Christians in the room. But I found that this is even true for people who wouldn't call themselves Christians. That, uh, you know, there's that saying that there's, there's no atheists in foxholes. Um, and I know atheists don't like that saying because the truth is there are plenty of atheists that have been in foxholes. And, uh, but, but the point of it is to say that, that in times of duress... Uh, when people are, are, have their backs against the wall, when they real, that's the moment when they tend to realize they need something bigger than themselves. And for most of us, uh, whether you're in the church or outside of the church, our prayers can be accurately summed up as this. Help. That's the kind of prayer we pray. But for Jesus, it's something indif- different that leads him to pray. For Jesus, it is God's sovereignty that begins his prayer. Why is that? 
Well, I think it, one thing, at least, is that Jesus understood the purpose of prayer. Jesus realized that prayer is not mainly for us to get things from God. A few months ago, I uh, saw this story, I don't know if you saw it, that Glenn Beck, one of the political pundits, was asking America to participate in a two or three day fast with him. Did anybody see this? I reread the article this week, and he said, I would like to ask you, you know, addressing everyone in the country, I would like to ask you to join me and my family Monday in a fast for a certain political candidate. He said, I want to join me in a fast for this candidate, for our country, and for the Nevada caucus. He hoped that by taking a few days to fast, that, that it would lead to a more likely case of success for this particular candidate that he was endorsing at the time. And now listen, fasting is a good thing. I don't, I don't want you to misunderstand me. Fasting is actually a wonderful thing. I think we as a church could, could gain by learning more about that discipline. And it's especially a good thing when the goal of fasting is to get us to pray more. But you got to be really careful with stuff like this. Because if you're not, if you're not paying attention, if you're not careful... This can turn into a way to, to twist God's arm, right? It's, it's a way to, to make sure that God's going to do what you want him to do. And that's not the point of prayer. The point of prayer is not to bend God's will to your will. It's not to say, well, I skipped lunch to pray, so now, God, you owe this to me. <laughs> I skipped lunch to pray, so now, God, you got to do what I want. No, it's exactly the opposite. The purpose of prayer is not to bend God's will to our will, but it's to to conform our will to his. And that's why when Jesus teaches us to pray, the Lord's Prayer that we pray every week, that's why Jesus teaches us first to pray about God's majesty, about his will, about his sovereignty, right? He says, our Father in heaven, holy is your name. Your kingdom come, and your will be done. He says those are the things we should start with before we move on to our petitions. Because when we take time to focus our thoughts on God's sovereignty, on his will, on his plans, then our prayers become discernibly different. The things that we pray for may not change, but the way we pray them transforms. And so that's the first thing I just want to point out at the beginning. Our, our instinct is, is to pray because of uncertainty. But Christ's prayer right here, it shows us that God's sovereignty is the best starting point for prayer. That we need to start our prayers from the only place of certainty that there is. In God's kingdom coming, in his will being done, in his name, in his holiness. Okay, and so from that, then I want us to go look and see the glory that surrounds our prayer. As we keep looking at this uh, passage, especially as we look at these first five verses, you might notice one interesting characteristic. Instead of there being a huge litany of things that Jesus is, is praying for and asking for when he prays for himself, there's really only one petition. There's only one request that Jesus makes for himself, and it's, it's just repeated a few times. He says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son. 
Now, we need to think about that for a minute. Glorify your son. I don't think we understand what that means. As I've thought about it this week, I'm not sure we get those words because we're not so clear on, on the term, glorify. We, I, I think we really need to examine the root word behind it, glory. Now, some of you may know that we have a child in my house who is named Glory. <laughs> She's our newest one, and shortly after we had decided that name for her, Ruby, our oldest daughter, asked me, Yo, what does that name mean, Dad? And I was like, oh, yeah, what does that mean? <laughs> well, so trying to answer my seven-year-old, I started thinking through my seminary education, I think through my Hebrew. I'm like, well, the Hebrew word, it kind of means heaviness. No, wait, no, that's not right. <laughs> what does it mean? What is glory? Well, C.S. Lewis, he, he says that for our modern minds, when we hear the term glory, we, we have a few things that come to mind. The first thing that comes to mind is, is fame, right? Being better known than someone else. Having more people know about who you are or just brightness, luminosity. C.S. Lewis says like being some kind of human electric light bulb. And neither of those things seem all that desirable, and certainly the fame thing, you know, we might categorize that as, as not a good thing to desire. But so that can't really be what glory means. That can't be what, what Jesus is thinking of here. Um, John Piper, who was a pastor in Minnesota, he actually had an article that I thought explained this really well. Um, he said the reason why glory is a difficult thing for us to grasp is because it's a difficult thing for us to define. It's not like a simple object, like a basketball or something. If somebody didn't know what a basketball was like, you could describe it, right? Well, a basketball is it's about this size. It's, it's made of leather. You, you pump it up with air, and then it, it gets kind of hard, and you can dribble it and shoot it through a hoop. And after you described it for a few minutes, that person could then go and be presented with a basketball and a baseball and tell you which one was the basketball, right? You can describe an object like that. But when you say, what is glory? You can't really do that. Glory is, is like beauty. It's one of those things that you, you know it when you see it, right? You can say, there it is. There it is. There, there it is. <laughs> and after a while, then you can gather a shared vocabulary of what glory is. But, but it's not something that we can describe. It's just something that we can see. And Scripture tells us glory is definitely something we can see. Psalm 19, it says, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim His handiwork. Isaiah 6, do you remember that story where God appears to Isaiah and it says that these angels were flying around him and, and here's what they were declaring. He said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. God is holy. He's perfect. He's majestic. He's full of splendor. And his glory is the visible evidence of that in the world. Scripture tells us that the whole world is shouting about the glory and the majesty and the magnificence of God. 
whether it is the, the vastness of, of, of nature, whether it's the beauty of, of an ocean or a mountain, or whether it is, is the intricacies, the smallest points of creation, the, 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 the amazing smallness of, of an atom, all of creation is declaring the glory of God. That's what glory is. Glory is his perfection. Glory is God's splendor on display for us. Now, I've got to remember to go tell that to Ruby after the service (laughs) so she understands. That's what God's glory is. So then we go back to this prayer. Jesus says, glorify the Son. The first point in the sermon, I was telling you we could learn a lot by modeling our prayer after Jesus, by rooting our prayer in the sovereignty of God. But I want to warn you, don't follow him here. (laughs) This is not a prayer that we can pray. Glorify me. (laughs) This is not meant for you. This is something that is actually very uniquely tied to the person and the work of Jesus. If you look at verse 5 of our passage, it says, he elaborates, Now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Jesus' prayer is that God would make him glorious, that he would restore to Jesus the glory that he had before the world existed. And if you're confused about what he's talking about, what do you mean restoring glory to Jesus? How do, what, was this, what change happened? Well, uh, Paul spells it out pretty clearly for us in the, the book of Philippians. It's a pretty common passage that we read a lot. But he says that all Christians should have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And here he describes... Christ's glory. Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And therefore God has exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess in heaven and on earth and under the earth that Jesus Christ is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. In other words, when Jesus prays, glorify me, he's saying, make me the Savior of the world. When Jesus is praying, glorify me, when he's praying, exalt me, he is also saying, crucify me. It's important for you to pick up on that, too. You need to see that when Jesus is praying for glory, that actually includes the cross. The cross is not simply the obstacle that Jesus has to get through in order to achieve glory, in order to receive glory, but the cross is a part of the glory. The cross is a part of this eternal glory that Jesus is praying for. Revelation calls Jesus the lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world. Try to get your mind around that. 
Jesus is asking God to, to give him the full glory that comes from the cross. And that kind of seems strange to us, right? Because the, the cross, just on the surface, doesn't seem that glorious. It seems like the low point, right? It seems like humiliation. But Jesus prays for it like it's glory. So what, why is the cross glorious? Well, I said that glory is, is what? God's splendor, his majesty, his holiness on display for the world. And the cross is the ultimate place where that happens. The cross is the ultimate point where God's holiness is put on display in the world. Here's how Paul describes the cross and the way it relates to glory. He says in Romans 3, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Because of our sin, because of our selfishness, because of our, our idolatry, uh, because we have turned from God, we fall far short of God's glory. We have no hope to achieve it, no hope to attain it. But then he goes on, we fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that's in Jesus Christ, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he has passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. The cross puts God's glory on display. The cross puts God's holiness on display. It puts his perfect justice on display because in the cross, God punishes all of our sins. He does not leave the guilty unpunished. But it also puts his perfect mercy on display that he might be the justifier. He sent Christ to stand in our place so that we could be counted as innocent. The cross is the most glorious moment in history. Without it, where would we be? Without it, none of us would know if we could really count on God. Without it, none of us would know how far he would be willing to go for us. No, the cross, it's the shining beacon. The cross is the moment that declares the glory of God. The cross is the assurance that anyone who comes to God, anyone who tries to pray, will be heard if they come in the name of Jesus. The cross is the glory that surrounds our prayer. The cross is the glory that surrounds every prayer that's rightly prayed. So the last thing I want us to look at um, is then the sight that drives us to pray. We talked about how we might start our prayers. We looked at, at the glory that enables us to pray. But now we need to look at the sight that actually drives us to pray. What's going to make us pray? We're going to spend the next two weeks talking about prayer. Next week we're talking about praying for holiness. And the, the following week for mission. So let's look at Jesus again. Chapter 17 of John. He says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. So Jesus' aim 
in his prayer is what? Glorify. He says he wants to glorify God. He says glorify the Son, that the Son can glorify you. Jesus' aim in all this praying is to glorify God. And that is the right end for all prayer. The glory of God is the right end of all prayer because it is the right end of all of our lives. Our, our confession that we talk about all the time, the first question, what is the, the chief end of man? What is the purpose of our existence? And the answer it gives is man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Our chief purpose on this earth is to praise and honor God, to glorify God. That's what we're here for. We are creatures who have been created to glorify. And if you need proof, I'll I'll show you. Glory, glorifying is instinctive to us. We do it all the time. We glorify everything. It's the easiest thing in the world for us to praise something that we find glorious. For example, if you see a a bride on her wedding day, you don't need someone to tell you, oh, you should tell her that she's beautiful, right? You know it. You want to praise her. You want to say, hey, look at her. When you see a sunset, you, you say, come look at this. Come see this. Look at the sunset. When you finish a great novel, you tell people, right, you should read this book I just read. It was, it was amazing. It was wonderful. We praise things that are, are glorious. We naturally glorify things that we find glorious. For, for my son right now, the most glorious thing in his life is his collection of toy lightsabers. <laughs> and, and, and if you have been to our house lately, you know. <laughs> Because anyone who comes over, he immediately shows you his lightsabers. He wants to take you upstairs. He wants you to fight with him. Uh, he, and when he doesn't have them, he's thinking about them constantly. Right? It's the first thing he goes for when he comes back in the door. It's, it's what he wishes he was doing when we're making him sit down at the dinner table. Now, I didn't have to tell him to do that. <laughs> I didn't have to tell him to think that way. It's instinct. It takes no effort at all. We glorify the things that we find glorious. But the flip side of that is what? We can't glorify something that we don't find glorious. We we can't glorify something if we don't find it glorious. And that's our problem. That's why when Jesus, we added this last little verse uh, that comes from the end of the passage, Verse 24, he says, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Jesus prays that we would see his glory. Jesus prays that we would see his glory because he knows on our own we're not going to find him glorious. 2 Corinthians says, the God of this world has blinded the mind of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. That the God of this world, that that Satan, that sin, that our enemy has blinded us so that we can't see God's glory on our own. 
That's the pain of living in this fallen world. Sin has made us blind to the glory of the gospel. And yet, we are still creatures who exist to give glory. We are still creatures who exist to glorify. So what happens? What happens when we don't see Christ as glorious? Well, we just glorify something else. What? It really doesn't matter. (laughs) Pretty much anything. You name it, whatever it is, we glorify whatever there is. We take something, some experience, some person, some relationship, some position, and we praise it. We honor it. We stare at it. We obsess over it. We think about it. We contemplate it. We contemplate how excellent it is and how wonderful it will be when we obtain that thing or that person. We glorify it. We worship it. And here's the scariest part of this. Manny read it for us in our Old Testament reading. Scripture tells us that we become like the things we worship. He said that passage about, uh, he was reading that passage about idols. You know, it said they have eyes, but they don't see. They have hands, but they, they don't feel. They have mouths, but they don't speak. And those who serve them become like them. When we worship something that has no life in it, we become dead. We are, are separated from God by that. And so Jesus prays that we would see his glory. That we would know and worship the eternal God, right? That's what he says. This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. He prays that for us because he knows if we would just see it. If we could just see the glory of God, then we wouldn't have to try that hard to glorify him. The Apostle Paul, do you remember his story? He had spent his whole life persecuting the church. He had spent his whole life uh, trying to make sure that the, the gospel had been crushed. And then Jesus showed up to him. Jesus appeared, and he saw God's glory. And if you read the story in Acts, you know what Jesus says? He says, why are you persecuting me? That's about it. (laughs) That's what he says. And that moment, that revelation of glory was all that it took for, for Paul to devote the rest of his life, the rest of his energy, every moment of his life to making sure that the gospel was proclaimed as glorious to the ends of the earth. Our lives were made to glorify God. And when we see His glory, we will. But that's what has to happen. We will only glorify God if we see Him as the most glorious thing. As we, if we see Him as the most glorious one. So let me ask you. What's the most glorious thing to you today? What do you find glorious? What are you looking forward to the most right now? What is it that that you think will give you life this week? When you get stressed out, when you get anxious, where are you going to run? What is it 
in your life that's worthy of your praise, that's worthy of your time? What is it that gets all of your attention? Well, if your answer is anything other than Christ, you need to pray. You need to pray that God would show you his glory. You need to pray like Jesus prays here. Pray for sight. Pray that the Holy Spirit would show you that his beauty surpasses everything else in your life. Pray that God would give you the eyes to see what those idols are and to throw them away. To realize that they're shaping you into their image. And listen, I know that a lot of us struggle here. I know some of you know in your head and you really do believe in your hearts that he really is the most glorious one. And that you have a longing to praise him. That you want to honor him. That you want to glorify him with your life. And if that's the case, here's what you need to do. Look at it. Behold his glory. Stop looking at the things of the world. Stop contemplating them. Stop obsessing over them. And instead, look at his glory. Look at the place where we said his glory is most perfectly on display. And where was that? The cross. Look at the cross. Look at his perfect love on display for you. And let that glory start to transform you. The Psalms, they tell us that we become like the thing we worship. We become like the things that we glorify. Well, Paul says that too. He says, We all, with unveiled faces, behold the glory of the Lord, and we're being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to the next. That if you stare at Jesus, you become like Jesus. See him. Contemplate his sacrifice. Contemplate his holiness. Obsess over that. Imagine obtaining that. Make his glory the central longing of your life. Those who worship idols will become like them. But those who worship Jesus, those who see his glory, will be made glorious. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word, the the blessing of of your prayer for your church. And Lord, I I thank you for uh, this reminder today of your absolute and all-surpassing glory. Lord, I pray that you would enable us as we think about this today, as we think about it this week. I pray that you would open our eyes to see. I pray that you would open our eyes to see your glory, to see how your beauty surpasses anything this world has to offer. And I pray that you would open our eyes now to see our sin. Show us the things we need to confess and to cast out. Show us the things that we Uh, worship that lead to death. Lord, I pray that you would lead us into repentance and faith and bring us new life. In the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.